Let's pray. Father, our prayer is indeed that you would speak. And Lord, we pray with this psalmist that you would be our teacher, that you yourself would teach us your statutes and cause our hearts to resonate with the statement that your way is the blessed way. Make us feel that, Lord. Help us to live it. Help us to repent when we fail to. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to experience your presence, that you would mediate your goodness to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through this word that you've inspired. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 119. And as you turn there, I have to say something that's related to Psalm 119, though only uh, loosely, I admit. Um, Twenty years ago today, September 17th, 1997, I was sitting at lunch. This is a story that maybe you heard in a, in a slightly altered version from Denny Burke. I was sitting at lunch with Denny when um, uh, my sweet wife, who has taken our son Isaiah out to Children's Church, approached our table and contrary to Denny's version of the story, he did not introduce us. And he was not even thinking about introducing us. I had to introduce myself to that sweet lady. And um, um, so I'm just praising God today that 20 years ago, uh, Jill and I met. And um, um, the way in which this is related to Psalm 119 is that um, the way that the Lord lays out in Scripture is the way to the blessed life. And so I'm just testifying here this morning that the good life is to be found by getting married and staying married, and that the good life is to be found not in seeking your own uh, pleasure and by having your own way, but in laying down your life for those that you love. Um, as we approach Psalm 119, we are approaching a magnificent work of art, and this is also a massive work of art. It is huge. Hey, Jonathan, good to see you. Glad you're back in Louisville today. Um, yeah, that's really Jonathan. The other day I thought Mike Walker was sitting over here, but it wasn't Mike Walker, but that's really Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> praise the Lord. Welcome back. Uh, anyway, um, uh, as I was thinking about how to treat Psalm 119, this massive psalm, this, is, this psalm is 176 verses long, it's over a thousand words in the Hebrew original. It takes up eight pages of the Hebrew Bible. It's huge. And as I, was, as I was approaching this thing, I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to do it in one sermon. Just sort of do a flyover and, and sort of pick out what I want to do, what I want to talk about from the psalm. And honestly, I got convicted. Uh, I got convicted by the Holy Spirit who communicated to me that is not what I inspired this psalm for you to do with it. Um, and, and, and I actually, as I was reading and studying, uh, I was helped tremendously by, um, of all things, uh, two German liberal scholars. <laughs> Can you believe that? Uh, these guys, uh, they don't believe what we believe about the Bible, but they were tremendously helpful to me. And one of them um, had this quotation, and he, and he said this about Psalm 119. He said, if the goal of the author was to create the psychic conditions conducive to the spiritual experience he seeks. Now, just to put that in plain language, 
If his goal, what he's saying is, is to put you in a spiritual mood, a certain spiritual mood, he goes on to say, then those commentators who wish the psalm were shorter have missed the point of it. What the scholar is saying is that in order to achieve his goal, this author had to write a long psalm. And then he goes on to explain. He says, its idea can be communicated in a verse or two. Indeed, in any verse or two of the 176. Okay, so here he's saying, yes, you could read a verse or two and sort of get the point. God's Word is really good. God's Word does really good things to you. You should want God's Word. That's, that's kind of what he's communicating. But then he goes on. He says, but nearly knowing the theology is not equivalent to being in the state of mind that comes from reading it in a deliberate and reflective fashion. So I'm going to say right now that what I'm going to do in in taking this, this psalm apart and trying to walk through it bit by bit is not going to do everything that the, psal- the, that the psalmist meant to accomplish in our hearts. Because one of, the, one of the things that is accomplished as we read the psalm slowly and meditatively is that our, our hearts begin to change. And our hearts begin to feel these statements that the psalmist is, is restating and reformulating and reconfiguring and then saying over and over to us in ever new ways. And then he, he continues, um, he says, there are liturgies that are best short and others like Psalm 119 that work only if they are long. So I want to commend to you the practice of, of reading the Psalms, maybe even reading them aloud and, and reading them slowly. And I would urge you to try to find some time, just Mark out for, your, for yourself some time this week and read through the whole of Psalm 119. And then, and then maybe if you get another opportunity uh, at, during the week or at the end of the week, do it again. You will not regret the experience of slowly allowing this psalmist to speak to your heart. Let me tell you a little bit about his art. Um, in some ways, this psalm is so big, it's, it's sort of like approaching a pyramid, you know? And what I was thinking about doing was um, getting in an airplane and flying over the pyramid. And if we had done that, we would not have seen the artistry, we would not have explored its depth, and we would not have, have, have seen the architectural construction that, that has been employed in the creation of this magnificent work of art that is Psalm 119. So what we've got here are 22 eight-verse stanzas. And if you're looking at a copy of the ESV like I'm looking at, and if you don't have one, there's one in the Pew Bible. I don't know if other translations do this. Uh, right above the first verse, you see the, this, this strange-looking word, A-L-E-P-H. It's Aleph. That's the word for the first letter of the Hebrew Bible. And every eight verses, they're going to give you the next letter of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew alphabet. Sorry. So, so what the psalmist does is he takes the Hebrew alphabet... A, B, C, the equivalent, you know, all the way to Z. And, and section by section, for eight verses, he starts every line with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, um, you know, if you, were to, if you can imagine seeing verses 1 through 8, and every verse starts with the letter A. That's the way it looks in Hebrew. And then the next eight verses, every letter starts with B. And then the next eight verses, every letter starts with C, and so forth, all the way to the end. This accomplishes several things for him. Uh, one thing it does is it gets, gives a sense of totality 
and completion, like he's saying everything there is to say about the Bible. Of course, he's not, but he's giving you that sense. And he's also, he's also constraining himself. He's imposing upon himself a poetic restraint and then working within that restraint to accomplish his art. So there are 22 eight-verse stanzas. So, you know, my math people in the room, eight times 22 is 176. That's how we arrive at the number of verses in the psalm. There are also eight key words in this psalm. And those eight key words, uh, the, the, the main word in the psalm is Torah, which the, uh, the, the Greek translation translated into Greek as namos, which is law. And then so it comes into English as law, but the Hebrew word Torah really means instruction. Um, that's the key word. The instruction or the Torah of the Lord is what this psalm is about. And then the other seven words are just synonyms for the word Torah. They're words like testimonies. So the Lord is going to testify to us. They're words like precepts. You know, the Lord, a precept is a teaching. Uh, they're words like statutes. A statute, um, as I understand it in this psalm, is the result of a, of a judgment where I think a law has been applied. So there, the, these statutes get enacted. And then there are, um, uh, uh, the word promise is appeared. Uh, it appears. So there are eight of these key words um, that appear across the psalm, and they appear exactly 176 times. So there are 176 verses uh, composed of eight verse units, and then there are eight key words, and those eight key words, not all of them appear exactly 22 times, so the poet has he's employed some variation in his art, but he arrives at 176, uh, depending on how you count it, because there's some things that it looks like maybe a scribe made an error. It could be 177, but it's, the point is it's, it's, it's amazing what this poet has accomplished. And um, uh, if you've been here, this is the last comment that I'll make about um, the psalm before we dive in. If you've been here for a while, you know that I often um, see a, a kind of mirrored uh, structure to the psalms or uh, way, ways that the first part corresponds to the last part, the second part corresponds to the second to the last, and so forth. It's a, it's a chiastic structure. And as I was looking at this psalm, I was lost in all the detail. And I, I, I thought to myself, I just do not see what this guy is doing other than just restating himself. And that's when I started reading these two guys, Hosfeld and Zenger, and I texted Denny and Matt, and I said, uh, I said, I couldn't find a chiasm in this psalm, but Hosfeld and Zenger showed me one. And Matt replies, what would we do without those guys? <laughs> so, so I do think that there is a movement of thought in this psalm. We are not going to get through it all today. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to approach the pyramid and we're going to take it the only way that you can take something this large. We're going to just try to take off little bits that we can handle and, and move through it bit by bit and try to, try to understand what we're looking at. Um, I said that was the last thing. I got two more things for you. Sorry. The, um, the eight verse units seem to come in pairs. You know, so the first and second seem to go to, together, the third and fourth, the fifth and sixth, and so forth all the way through. And, and that's accomplished by things like... Look at, verse, look at verse 7, where he says, I will praise you with an upright heart. And then in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Verse 10, with my whole heart, 
I seek you. So the repetition of heart and keep, you know, at the border there, seems to join verses 1 through 9 to verses 9 through 16. And then when you start looking at it, you start finding uh, thematic resonance between those two sections as well. So they come, the, the eight verse sections come in uh, units of two. And then within the eight verse sections, it seems to go four verses kind of on one idea and then four verses on the next idea. So the, the eight verse units uh, tend to break in half with a thought to each side. So let's look at the first eight vor- verses and we'll see, we'll see uh, how far we get through this today. I think I know how far we're going to go, but we'll see. Um, what's happening here in the first eight verses of Psalm 119 is the psalmist is saying, you know what the good life is? The good life is found in obeying God's instructions. I wonder if you believe that this morning. Yesterday we were in the, we were in the car and um, um, Jill was handling the music, which sometimes happens. Uh, maybe, I don't know if it was yesterday, but recently. And uh, this song came on, this old country song that we used to, I used to listen to when I was younger. And this guy is singing, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox When I Die. And then he says, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. And then he starts talking about, and you, maybe you've been in a scene like this. He starts talking about Leon, uh, neon lights and honky-tonk music. And what comes into my mind are smoke-filled rooms, you know, and, um, and people that um, are, yeah, whatever you think about people like that. People that are dancing and carousing and drinking. And this is what this guy wants. This is what this guy lives for. He lives for neon lights and smoke-filled rooms, and he wants to keep doing it when he dies. There's there's a lot better things to live for than that. Look at what the psalmist says to us here in Psalm 119, verse 1. I don't have anything against dancing. I don't have anything against music, okay? Um, I think there's more to live for than even the best dancing, even the best music. The psalmist says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Torah or the instruction of Yahweh, who walk in the the law of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Do you believe that? This word for blameless, it, it can mean something like integrity. Blessed are those who have the integrity that, that results in all of their lives being in accord with what God has instructed. Do you believe that or do you believe that it's actually better to be in a bar, getting drunk, maybe picking up somebody that you're going to go home with? Which way do you think is the better life? And, and what we want to do is we want to let the scriptures speak to us. And I don't, you know, I don't know what your temptation is. Maybe your temptation is not to go to a bar and want to be propped up next to a jukebox. And, and he says, set me up with a mannequin. I mean, I, a dead thing, right? I mean, it, who would want to have that? You could, you, instead of that, you could go to sleep and be at home with the Lord, awaiting a resurrection body that is going to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth, and you want to be propped up next to a jukebox and rot? Blessed are those of the way of integrity who walk in the Torah of Yahweh. Sometimes what we need is to be told directly that sin that you cherish, it is not your friend. 
that sin that you're longing for, it is not doing for you what you hope it's going to accomplish. This is the blessed way. And then he just restates it another way in verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So if we ask, what does it look like to keep the Lord's testimonies? The answer that the psalmist gives is, it means seeking God, which implies this. The whole point of obedience is to enjoy God himself. The whole point of obedience... Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him. Why do you want to keep the testimonies? Because you're seeking God. The point of obedience is to know God. The point of obedience is to enjoy God's presence. And then he he makes another comment about these people. Um, He says, who also do no wrong. The particular kind of wrong in view here is injustice. Injustice results from a lack of integrity. Injustice results from not hearing God's testimonies. Injustice results from deviations from God's instructions. Who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. Uh, Notice verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless. And then verse uh, 3 there. They walk in his ways. So what's the blameless way? Well, it's the ways that are set forth in the scriptures. Concluding comment about this section in verse 4, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. We are to carefully heed and hear and and then bring ourselves into line with the scriptures. So there's our first four verse unit. And he's celebrating the blessed way. Look at what he says in verse 5. Statements like this in the Bible are so comforting. This guy, this this poet of Israel, probably has all of the Bible available to him in in his day memorized by heart in the Hebrew original. And not only does he know the Scriptures backwards and forwards, he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is a really good person writing this psalm. I don't know who he was. He doesn't tell us who he is, but this is one of the good guys. Look at what he says in verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do you hear what he's saying there? I'm a sinner, and I wish that I was more in accordance with your law. I don't know about you, but it's comforting to me that the guys that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures were sinners. That's comforting to me. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Every last one of us. Now, let me just say very quickly, the fact that this guy was a sinner did not keep him from telling the truth. This is, this is the work of the Spirit in him. The, the Spirit so worked in this particular sinner that when he communicated, everything that he said was true. But he blew it. He blew it. And I wonder if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, happy are the people that's another, word, another way you could translate this word blessed. Happy are the people who live with integrity. And I haven't lived in integrity. I've blown it. And I've blown it so many times that maybe there's no hope for me. I want to encourage you to pray verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. 
You, you see what's happening for this psalmist. Verses 1 through 4 are putting before him God's holiness, God's holy teaching. And he's responding to that by recognizing it's good and it's right and that's the way to live. And I'm wrong. And I've deviated from the standard. But I want the standard. I want to live in accordance with the standard. Uh, really, what he's doing is reflecting the teaching of, of the Scriptures. You know, the book of Leviticus, which is part of what he's talking about when he talks about the law of the Lord, the book of the Le Leviticus over and over says this. It's, it says, if, if anyone commits a sin, you know, it goes through these different possible sins. I'm reading from Leviticus chapter 4. And then later in that verse it says, and it's hidden from him. So, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. You transgress one of God's commandments, and you don't realize your danger. You don't realize how guilty you are before a living God. It's hidden from you. And then the verse, Leviticus 4, 4 goes on to say, when he comes to know it. Okay, so you've transgressed. You weren't thinking about all the implications of it. You weren't thinking about God's holiness. You weren't thinking about uh, what this would mean for you on judgment day. And then you realize the impact that this has on people that you love. The implications of your actions for the rest of your life. You've come to know it. When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt. The, the next verse says, when he realizes his guilt and confesses the sin he has committed. And then it goes on to talk about how he's to go up to the temple to make atonement for his sin. You see what the Bible is doing? The Bible is saying, here's the path to repentance. You, you come to know your sin, you realize the guilt of it, you confess it, and then you take the Lord's provided sacrifices to seek atonement so that you can have your sins forgiven. And, and under the Old Covenant, you know, they offered up all these animals on the altar of burnt offering. Under the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus came and He died. And, and so if you're, if you're feeling with the psalmist here this morning in verse 5, oh, that my ways may be steadfast. I'm a long way from steadfast. I'm a long way from keeping the commandments. What you need is you need to realize your guilt. You need to confess your sin. And you need to go to Jesus. Look at verse 6. So he, what the psalmist is doing in verses 5 through 8 is responding to verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Look at how good God's instructions are. Verses 5 through 8, I'm a sinner, verse 5. Look at verse 6. Now he's talking about an implication of this response. So if he responds this way, if he realizes his guilt, Leviticus 4, 4 and 5, confesses his iniquity, and then comes and offers the prescribed sacrifice under the old covenant, which, you know, translated for us means you realize your position, you turn from your sin, you confess it, you go to Jesus. Look at verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Uh, I, would, I would render this a little bit, just listen to this. I would not be put to shame when I look at all your commandments. You know what I think he has in view here? I think he's thinking about judgment day. Judgment day. Can you imagine this scene? You're standing before God, and the standard of God's law is right there for everybody to see. How are you going to feel when you approach the throne? Are you going to feel shamefaced, devastated, 
overwhelming remorse, crushing guilt. If you don't turn to Christ, if you don't turn to Jesus, that's exactly what you're going to feel. But this guy is describing in Old, Te- Old Testament, Old Covenant terms, a way to come before the throne with the commandments set out there and the eyes are fixed on the commandments and then the eyes turn to your way of life and you're not put to shame. I will not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. How? Because of repentance and a commitment to keeping the Bible. Look at verse 7. Not only will he have no shame at the day of judgment... Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. What he's saying is, having beheld God's instructions in verses 1 through 4, confessed and repented in verse 5, and then knowing that he's going to be safe on judgment day in verse 6, he's responding in praise. He's saying, this is the God who saves. I will praise you with an upright heart. I can praise God who shows mercy to miserable sinners like me. I was guilty. I was damned. And I was shown mercy. Mercy that is astonishing. Mercy that is scandalous. And the result for somebody scandalized by God's mercy is to respond to him with praise. And then there's this commitment in verse 8. I will keep your statutes I'm going to walk with you, Lord. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Look at the awareness of his need for God's presence if he's going to walk in righteousness, if he's going to walk with God. So verses 1 through 8, you've got the law presented and then a response to the law, a response of repentance and confession, uh, thinking about the judgment day in verse 6, and then uh, praise in response to God's mercy in verse 7. Verses 9 through 16 continue this response to God's law. And uh, there's a question here in verse 9 that that maybe uh, many of you have memorized. How can a young man keep his way pure? You, You could translate this, how can a young man get his way pure? Or you could say, how can a young man get and keep his way pure? And the answer that's given there is, by keeping or guarding it according to your word, which includes everything that we've just talked about from Leviticus 4 and, 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 and you know, the New Testament with Jesus and everything. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then look at verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. Look back at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. The psalmist has experienced this renewal, and he's now saying um, the way, the path to purity, the way to live is the path of the Scriptures. So I'm going to do, verse 10, what I described in verse 2, with my whole heart I seek you. And then there's awareness of his need for God. Let me not wander from your commandments. Uh, so what we're seeing here is, is commitment to, to, to pursue the Lord, and that commitment is going to issue in the memorization of Scripture. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up my, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Scripture memory is being commended here as the path to defeating sin. I'm going to say that again. 
Scripture memory is commended here as the path to defeating sin. So it's like the psalmist is saying to us, do you want to overcome the sin in your life? Do you really want to overcome the sin in your life? Have you recognized that, that what sin offers you is a, is a packet of lies? That is not the way to be happy. The way to be happy is to live in accordance with God's instructions. If you see that, the way to get from where you are to the blessed life is by memorizing Scripture. That's what the psalmist is saying. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm not saying that if you memorize a bunch of Scripture, you will attain to perfect obedience. You won't. You'll be a sinner till the day you die or until Jesus returns. You'll continue to be a sinner. I am saying that you will find God's word talking to you. You will, you will find the Lord speaking to you through the words of Scripture that you have written on the tablets of your mind. So, so I would urge you to just take these patterns of words, these Bible verses, and repeat them over and over until the, the tracks through the synapses and nerve endings of your brain are just beaten so that once you hear the first word or the second word, the rest just follows automatically. You can transform your mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in what God has promised in the name of Jesus by memorizing the Scriptures. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then he responds in verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. You know what I think he's doing? It's like he's saying, look at these people who have integrity. Look at these people with great lives. Look at the common characteristic that, that, that they share. They don't steal from people. They don't murder other people. They don't commit adultery. They don't covet what other people have. They honor their father and mother. You know where all that comes from? They love the Lord their God with all their hearts. They love their neighbor as their self. Look at how happy they are. God, you are so good to reveal a way to live that is so blessed. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist is crying out to the, this phrase, teach me your statutes. You read through Psalm 119, you underline that every time it, it occurs in a particular color because there are other things that are going to recur all across the psalm. And you'll see that this phrase happens all over and over and over again. The psalmist is crying out, You, God, teach me your statutes. And then he responds again. So he's got this commitment in verses 9 through 12, a desire for the blessed life, a, a desire to to hide the word in his heart, to build his brain on the Bible so that he can have the blessed life. And now he talks about how he goes about it in, in verses 11 through, uh, I'm sorry, verses 13 through 16, these next four verses here. So the first thing is related to Scripture memory, I think. I think verse 13 follows directly from verses 11 and verse 9. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's reciting the scriptures. So he's, he's hidden the word in his heart, and now with his mouth he's speaking the words of scripture. So he's reciting the scriptures, and then look at the result of this in verse 14. 
in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Have you ever seen somebody that, that just the thought of massive wealth makes them happy? Maybe, I mean, I can remember um, people telling me about Steve Jobs, who apparently uh, didn't want to bother with a license plate. And so to avoid, this is what I'm told, or somebody told me this, so to avoid having to go to the DMV or wherever to get a license plate, he just bought a new car every six months. <laughs> can you believe that? Every six, you know, they, they give you the temporary tag, it lasts for this amount of time, and when, when the tag's about to run out, he just goes and buys another one, so he doesn't have to deal with the DMV. Just go sell that car and buy a different one. Just fabulous, incomprehensible wealth. And what the psalmist is saying is, as much as in all riches, as much as in all wealth, I delight in the Scriptures. You know what he's recognized? What he's recognized is the Bible can do things for you that money could never do for you. The Bible can accomplish things in your heart, in your character, that money could never do for you. Because the Bible has the ability to make it where you know God, where you're right with God, and where you're okay with whatever God has allotted to you. You're content with whatever God has given to you. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're a long way from the Lord. And maybe this looks really good to you. Maybe, I hope it does. I hope you hear all this talk about the blessed life, and I hope you, you feel, verse 5, oh, that my ways may be steadfast. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. If you go to Jesus, if you cry out to him, if you come to him, he is not going to tell you you're too dirty. He is not going to tell you you've committed that same sin too many times. He is not going to tell you that he's had it with you, his patience is over with you. He is going to receive you with open arms. And so I would plead with you to turn from your sin. And I would plead with you to flee to Jesus. I want you to have the, the light of verse 14. But you can only have it if you are storing up the word in your heart and then guarding your way in according to the word, accordance with the word, verse 9. In that way, you start reciting the truths of Scripture, and what you'll find is delight in God's testimonies as much as in all riches, not least because money is not God. Money wants to be God, but money is not God, and, and money will never satisfy you. So, you know, you've heard, I'm sure, the story, I think it was Lee Iacocca that they said to him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. There's, there's never going to be enough. But you know what somebody who's in need, who knows God, you know what their response is? The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If the Lord wants to provide for me, he's able to provide for me, and I'm going to trust him. Verse 15. You've got recitation of Scripture in verse 13. You've got delight in Scripture in verse 14. Look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. This is not just experiencing the knowledge one time. This is a deepening appreciation and understanding that comes from repeated rehearsal and long, slow, careful thought. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It is a joyful thing to walk with God, to know his word. I was hoping to get about twice as far as this, but here we are. The Bible is so rich and so good. I am going to conclude with the story that I was planning to tell at the end. And to get to that story, i got to take you down to verse 32. I was hoping to get to verse 32 at least this morning. Psalm 119, verse 32, the psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And then look over at verse 45. He says, I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. The, the terminology for the wide place is the same terminology used for the enlarging or the making of the heart wide. And so it's like what the psalmist is saying is, when you make my heart wide, like your word, I will run in the way of your commandments. When you make my heart when you enable my heart to want what the Scriptures teach. I think that's the reason for the, the similarity of the terminology. The Scriptures are a wide place, and he wants God to make his heart like the Scriptures, wide. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments. Uh, in 1997, the same year that Jill and I met, uh, when we met, I was training for a marathon. And I had this friend named Mark Ackerman who was living down in Waco, Texas, and... Um, uh, Mark had already run a couple of marathons, and, and so he was farther down the training path than I was. And, um, and so he, he, as we're training, we're kind of training together, but remotely. And there were some other friends that, we, mutual fin, friends that I was running with in Dallas. And, um, and, and Mark says to us all, hey, let's enter this 10-mile race in Dallas on this particular day in the fall. I don't remember the date, but I remember the race. And uh, we all entered, and it turned out that I was the only one able to be there to run it with Mark. And Mark was, he was a stronger, faster runner than me. And he dragged me through that 10 miles. I mean, I did everything that I could to stay with him the whole race. And it, it just about killed me. It wiped me out. But that was a breakthrough in my training. Because I ran that 10 miles harder than I thought was possible for me, when I went out to run our daily runs after that, I felt like I was flying. I felt like this was so easy. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This psalm, if you read this repeatedly, slowly, meditatively, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, God will enlarge your heart and it will be like a breakthrough in the training for you. You will find resisting temptation easier. I mean, I'm telling you, we, we would go, what, this was our training plan. I don't know if it was a good training plan, but we went on these 40, we ran 40 minutes a day, five days a week, and then one day on the weekend, we went for a long run. So we ran this race on Saturday. It was our long run for the week, 10 miles. I went out to run that 40, mi 40 minutes on Monday. I felt like I was sprinting. I felt like I was floating. I felt so strong. We got done, and I was like, who wants to run some more? I mean, we didn't run more, but, but that's the way... I will run in the way of your commandments. You will feel delight in obedience. 
You will feel what this psalmist is going to talk about when he starts talking. Look at verse 103 here. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. God can do this in your heart. You can have a training breakthrough. It will happen by the power of the Holy Spirit on the strength of God's Word. So I would urge you to commit yourself to the Word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom from the Scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be so saturated in your Word that we will think about the shame that we don't want to experience on Judgment Day. Lord, cause us to ask ourselves, will I be ashamed of this come Judgment Day? Cause us to ask ourselves, is this going to help me praise God? And then, Lord, make us pray the words of Psalm 119, verses 6 and 7. I shall not be put to shame. I will praise you with an upright heart and make it so, Lord. Be our teacher. Transform us. Renew us into the image of the Lord Jesus. Give us this delight, we pray, in your scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you'd change everything around us through this. We pray that you would make our marriages better. Lord, if our marriages are broken, I pray that through repentance and confession, you would cause restoration. Lord, if, if our hearts are trained in the ways of iniquity, I pray that through storing your word up, up in our hearts, you would give us new desires. Lord, you can do this. You have saved us, and you can transform us. And we are placing ourselves at your disposal asking you to have your way. In Christ's name, amen.